Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If you're in the lobby getting your uh, refill and a cup of coffee, if you can make your way back in, we're going to get started. The rest of our service. It's really nice that it's a day where we can crack the windows open a bit. Super sunshiny. Uh, So welcome to spring. I think it's finally sprung upon us. So I've been looking forward to this week's sermon for a few weeks. Um, It's this may sound sad, but it's true. Uh, It's not often that I have an emotional response to a particular passage anymore. Um, especially after years of preaching and teaching the Bible because things become a little familiar. And for me, you can sort of get used to the stories. And sometimes uh, that's what happens. But our passage today is a little bit different for me. I think for me, uh, it goes back to, of all things, of all things, a Facebook post that I read back in September. Now, I know, I know it's foolish to get too worked up over anything, underlined, anything posted on Facebook or social media in general. But this was one article that really did it to me. And I'm not exactly 100% sure why it touched off things in me. Maybe it was because I read the article right after Terrence Kretschner was shot and killed uh, when his car broke down along the side of the road. Or maybe... It was because the article was written by a a good pastor friend of mine. I don't know, but I remember the article, and I've changed the title a little bit because I'm not really interested in calling anyone out, but the article was basically titled, Six Reasons Why I Don't Join in the Secular Fight Against Racism. And the main points were that Christians should only focus on changing people, one at a time, And that if we change people, we eventually will change society, and that systemic approaches were not what Jesus modeled or prescribed. Hmm. Well, let me just say, first of all, I am all for seeing people transformed. There is no doubt about that. But I wonder if this accurately reflects what Jesus modeled and taught and the way that he wants us to live. And it's sort of stuck in my craw in a way that I... I couldn't sort of just let go of. And I had to fight every instinct in me not to get into a big, you know, long discussion on Facebook, which would have helped no one. And as I thought about it, though, I actually see this tying into some larger questions that seem to be dividing people in our society today. So painting with very broad strokes here. Very broad, incomplete strokes. But we might think of my friend's approach to... uh, You might think that my friend's approach mirrors what could be called a traditionally conservative perspective. Namely, that personal, individual responsibility is the key to flourishing. Focus on the individual. Again, with broad strokes, we might say that the alternative or traditionally liberal approach would be to create a program to address injustice. Focus on the system. Fix the system and people will be okay. So the question, I think, for people of faith and people who come this morning, I think, is where does Jesus land? Is his approach conservative or liberal? Is he red? Is he blue? 
And I think the hopeful thing about Jesus is that he absolutely transcends all of these labels. And that's what brings us to the last phrase of the Bible passage that we've been looking at for the past six weeks that we have called Jesus's mission statement for his life. And it reads this way, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is our verse for today. That's our line. And full disclosure, that's the line that gives me so much hope today that I think makes Jesus different. And so that's what we're going to look at. But to get to that, we're going to come back to it later. And today we're going to start by looking and spend most of our time looking at a passage that I think illustrates uh, who Jesus is and what he thinks about these types of things Uh, that can put a nice context around that phrase. So we're reading from John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. And I'll read it to you. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples. Um, And actually, this is really perfect for us today because... Pause. um, (laughs) This is uh, Palm Sunday, where we remember and celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem. Um, And when you read this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, after the entrance into Jerusalem where people are laying down palm branches in front of him and shouting Hosanna, he goes right to the temple and has this experience that we're going to read right now. So it kind of fits with where we're going today, too, and makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels. Now, we're reading from John. John has a little bit of a different chronology than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he also adds some details that I think are particularly helpful for us today. So... Unpause. There they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, this passage might surprise you a little bit. Now, you may have heard it, and so maybe it doesn't catch you off guard the way it once did. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. But one thing that usually surprises people is it's pretty clear that Jesus is angry here. And we don't often think of him as someone who gets angry. We kind of think of him as like, oh, you know, Um, but he is angry. In fact, you can tell he's angry. He actually takes, he doesn't pick up a whip. He takes time to, what is it? Weave, weave a whip together. So as he's putting the whip together, he's thinking about what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. So this isn't just a moment of oh, I'm a little bit angry. This is like, 
extended. He's really upset here. He's taking time to build a whip to take some action. That's a striking image. Why was he so angry? I think there are a few reasons, and we're going to talk about some, but I think they're all connected to a similar concern. The temple was a special place. The temple was where heaven touched earth, where God's presence was, and where people could come and meet with him. It was meant to be a sign of the presence of the kingdom of God, where heaven comes to earth. But for Jesus, it wasn't living up to his picture of what the kingdom of God is and should be. And Jesus has a vision, a particular vision of what his kingdom looks like. And, it's, and it starts with this. Uh, it's a kingdom, and he's the king. And what does that mean? Because usually when we think about Jesus, honestly, I don't think we think of like Jesus as the king very often. I think we prefer to think of him as uh, someone who is by our side, who's our comforter, who's our friend, who's our brother. But he's the king of the kingdom. Another way to say this is that he has the authority to set the culture and practices of his kingdom. And he knows it. And apparently so do the other people around him, whether they realize it or not. So he makes this whip, right? And it, it says in our translation, he takes cords and he, he weaves them together to whip, uh, into a whip. But cords could probably be also just translated into rushes, uh, which means that the whip itself, while dramatic, uh, really held no danger of actually hurting someone. So it wasn't like he was like hitting people with a whip and inflicting pain, and so they would run from him. There's nothing really to be afraid of if, if someone's uh, whipping some rushes in your direction. So it wasn't that Jesus was beating people or animals to get them to obey. Someone could have stopped him. They could have stood up to him without fear of pain. Yet no one does. No one arrests him and apparently even gets in his way at all. It's as if on some level people understand that he has the right to do what he's doing. And this is a central question that is posed to him in this passage is what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus is essentially saying, this is my house. I have the right to do this. And people felt it. Whether they could add it up, they respected it. So he's a king. He's a good king. But he's still a king who knows he's a king. C.S. Lewis included this understanding of Jesus in the way he wrote the character Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some of you probably read this book. A decade or so, they made a movie, which was a a fairly big hit. And in that book, there's a scene where the children are hearing for the first time of Aslan the lion, who's the allegorical Christ figure in the book. He's the king of Narnia. And the interaction goes like this. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
And that's what we see in this passage. Jesus isn't safe. He's turning things upside down. He's making a mess. And notice he doesn't give anybody any reasons for why he's doing it. He just does it. He gives no warning, no preamble, or heads up to his disciples or anyone else. He just starts turning things over without permission or warning. And his disciples must have been confused, shocked, overwhelmed. And Jesus just lets them experience that. He's good, but he's not safe. He's a legitimate king. He has priorities. He has ways that he wants things to be. And he's going to make sure that they're that way. And in this passage, when he enters the temple, there's at least two things that he sees that, that make him angry, that he just can't let stand. Two commitments that he won't let go of. And the first is, He's committed to a place of connection and transformation. So we see in this passage that a key aspect of God's personality is that he knows that he's king, right? So he has the right to push things around, turn things over without giving us a reason. But we also see from the passage that he does operate with a reason. So when they ask him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will rise in it and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. The key phrase here is the temple he had spoken of was his body. This shows that Jesus understood something about who he was and gives us indications of why Jesus did what he did. By by saying, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, Jesus indicates that in this interaction that primary in his mind is his own death and resurrection. And it makes sense that for Jesus entering the temple, he would be thinking about the sacrifice that he was about to make himself. It's not that far off. This is Holy Week. It's just around the corner. And here he is in the temple, where the very reason that animals are being sold at all is because they are going to be sacrificed. So to come into God's presence, people were required by religious law to offer a sacrifice for their sins. And the idea was that, not that God wanted to kill anyone or anything, but that he was holy and the worshippers' lives were full of, of sin and mistakes. And so for those things to be placed on the sacrifice, and the sacrifice then cleared the way for them to come and worship. And the idea was also that worshipers, as they came to worship, would be able to reflect on their relationship with God. It's sort of a, there but for the grace of God go I. It was a reminder of grace. And so here Jesus comes into this environment. And as he entered the temple and he saw the animals taken for sacrifice, he must have begun to think about the ultimate sacrifice that he would make to do the same thing for all of humanity once and for all. But as he thought about the destruction and resurrection of his body, he was also faced with an environment that would have prohibited any type of meaningful reflection. Let me ask you, have you ever been to an open-air market? There aren't a ton in the U.S., um, 
The most exciting ones I've been to have been in other parts of the world. I remember going to one in Morocco and Marrakesh, this uh, square with a lot of people. And when you're in an open-air market, what happens? Do you just sort of walk around and it's like going up and down the aisles at Target, just sort of noodling around, seeing which mustard you want, what kind of paper towels you want to go with, or, you know, the recycled, or you want to, you know, is it like that? No. What's happening? It's loud. Why is it loud? Lots of people. And what are they doing? They're shouting at you. Like, come over here. I remember being at one. And uh, we were in Morocco, so uh, not everyone spoke a lot of English, but one guy knew a little bit, and I guess he figured that uh, we, we spoke English. So he goes, hey, skinny man. <laughs> and it's like, whoa. But if you were to walk in here, it's an open-air market. People are going to be like, I got the best dubs over here. Come on, two dubs for the price of one. You, skinny man, you, you, come here. And there's probably people running up to you, people trying to bring you to their booth. There's probably people paid to bring you to particular booths. Who Maybe there's people paid to give you a tour of the temple who are actually taking you to particular stalls. Who knows? It happens in other parts of the world. It's not in the Bible. Could have happened, but it's definitely loud. All right, and people are going to be calling you over. It's not exactly a place where you can reflect on the need that you have for grace and the grace that's been supplied to your life. Not only would it be hard to reflect on anything in that environment, but it had become sort of like a one-stop shopping place. Go here, get your animal, step right up, have it sacrificed, do what you got to do, get in, get out, and be on your way. No reflection, and therefore no connection to what was really happening. This is why, one reason why, I think that Jesus turns over the tables. The people needed to connect to and understand sacrifice. It couldn't just be a commercial transaction. He wants their minds and their hearts to be involved. This is important. Connecting to the sacrifice of Jesus is what roots us. It provides perspective in all of life's adventures and trials. And the sacrifice of Christ is the thing that at once humbles us and lifts us up. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, I have a friend um, that I was doing some work with, and she was struggling as a single parent to keep up with everything in her life and often feeling like a total failure. And she developed, as a spiritual practice, a mantra for herself. And the first half of the mantra is, I'm not enough. It was a reminder that no matter what she did, she didn't have enough on her own. And that was a reminder of her to turn to God for grace. But the second half of of her mantra was, I have everything that I need. That's what you see when you reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus. Without the sacrifice, I, I... you know, I don't have everything I need in life. I need the grace of God. Yet at the same time, I have the grace of God. And that's where worship comes from. Need and plenty mixed all in together. And people needed to connect to this idea. But if it's an open marketplace, if it's a commodified wham, bam, get in, get out, all of that, it loses the, the sense of connection and the possibility of transformation. That I'm not enough I have all that I need. If that becomes internalized, man, that changes your life. It changes how you view everything in your life, how you approach every challenge and every opportunity, 
every struggle, every conflict, every victory, every celebration. So that was missing. So Jesus is interested in transforming individuals. That's what this is about, right? Absolutely. Even one at a time, yes. But there's more here too. And this is what gave me so much hope about Jesus. And that is that Jesus is committed to our personal connection and transformation, but he's also committed to a place of systemic justice. Now let's go back to that phrase from Jesus' mission statement, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That sounds good, right? Who wouldn't want the favor of the Lord? Favor of the Lord sounds good. I can't imagine anything that would be bad about favor from the omnipotent, all-powerful being that has created everything and rules the cosmos, right? That sounds good. If I have that favor, that sounds awesome. But there's more here than just some general favor of God thing. When Jesus pulls this line from Isaiah, it actually refers to a specific thing that was in the Hebrew law of the Torah. And that was the year of Jubilee. That was the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you don't know what the year of Jubilee was, this was something that was written into the ancient Hebrew law that every 50 years, every 50 years, they'd blow a ram's horn. That's what Jubilee means. And what would happen is every debt was canceled. So if you were in debt, it was canceled. Every prisoner, captive, and slave was set free. And get this, everyone returned to their own property. So this was established when the Israelites had moved into their new homeland. Every family got a certain amount of land to be their family land. This meant that at 50 years, if you'd sold that land away, you got it back. If you had purchased that land, you gave it back. It was a total and complete systemic reset. It meant that if you had a generation where the head of the household uh, became an alcoholic, lost everything, that your family wasn't then condemned to generation after generation of poverty because there was a reset. Amen. Crazy idea. You see, Jesus, and Jesus nabs that. He says, this is part of my mission. See, Jesus cares about the systems in our society and whether they are fair to all people. For him, addressing systemic abuses was a sacred task, not a secular one. He certainly was upset with how distracting the animals and the market would have been to worshipers. But there's more going on here. The temples I mentioned was the center of Jewish worship for the rich, the poor, and everyone in between. It was the place. And at some point, every God-fearing Jew was expected to journey to Jerusalem to worship. From the poorest and most vulnerable, this was a challenge, to say the least, to make the trip. And then add to this the fact that the merchants played on this obligation, gouging worshipers as they exchanged their money to buy animals for sacrifice. You see, the common money of the day was Roman coins, Roman coins had a picture of Caesar on them. Graven images were not allowed in the temple. So what they did was move all of the animals inside the temple. 
So to purchase them, you had to change your money. If they weren't in the temple, you could just buy your dove or your lamb or whatever and bring your lamb in. But if you put them inside, then you get a deal with all the money changers and they can gouge people up and make it really much more expensive than it should be and cheat people as they change their money. Now, if you have a lot of money, it's not that big a deal. But if you don't, it's oppressive to people who are just trying to worship God. The system was rigged to take advantage of people who just wanted to worship, and it was particularly abusive to those who were poor. So what we see here with Jesus is a profound and sacred act of civil disobedience. Is it his house? Yes. Is he making a political and social statement? Yes. Jesus is protesting. You see, for Jesus, it's not enough just to engage with people one at a time, which he certainly does. There's lots of examples of it. But he also feels compelled when faced with injustice to stand up against it and point out the unjust system, systems that take advantage of the poor and the marginalized. He could have gone around table by table, vendor by vendor for several years, winning over their hearts, and then eventually possibly seen a systemic change over the course of many, many years. And that would have worked just fine for Jesus on one level because he wasn't rich, but he always had enough to worship at the temple. So he would have been able to continue worshiping at the temple while this strategy of one person at a time played out. But in the five years, the ten years or more that it took to win over all of those people, what are all the poor people who want to worship God supposed to do in the meantime? That didn't work for Jesus. For Jesus, this isn't an either or. This is a both and. He's not red or blue. It's not either or. He engages people with connection and transformation individually while also taking sacred action to turn the tables on the injustice he sees in the world. And in the end, it's just really about loving people, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving people by engaging them, love them by working to transform the systems that oppress them. That's the whole gospel. That's a holistic gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus. And this is what gives me so much hope and why I guess a lot of you here today are so attracted to Jesus. He's, he's not like anything we see in the leadership that's happening around us. He's completely different. He's his own thing. He can't be owned by any side because it always breaks down Does he want you to take individual responsibility for yourself? Yes. Does he want to break down the systems of injustice around you? Yes. Does he want to do one and wait for the other? No. Both at the same time. Because it wouldn't be loving to do one without the other. This is what gives us hope. This is why we follow Jesus. He's the king. Those are his priorities. And he's king enough to set his kingdom culture above and beyond all red and blue labels. And who demands 
uh, and who demands that it personally engages each person while ending all systemic injustice. That's what the Lord's favor looks like. So, we're wrapping up this series today. We're going to celebrate Easter. Just so you know, we've spent six weeks talking about justice and compassion. To talk about justice and compassion, you have to tap into issues of injustice. That's not always a lot of fun, I know. Uh, It's important and valuable and hopefully life-changing. Next week, we're going to celebrate. Because everything is not about injustice. Uh, There are miracles happening around us all the time. And so we're going to start with celebrating the biggest miracle, which is the resurrection of Jesus. So that's next week. We're going to party and celebrate that things aren't perfect in the world, but here's the sign of hope. Here's the sign of renewal. And then we're going to spend the whole next series just looking at the miracles of Jesus. So yeah, things might be messed up. Yes, we want to take action. Yes. But in the middle of everything, The kingdom of God is breaking in all the time, and miracles are happening, and miracles are happening in your life and my life. So just so you know, that's where we're going. But as we wrap up this six weeks where we've talked about injustice, and we've asked you to look around uh, at your world and your friends and look at people that you might not necessarily most easily identify with and try and learn about people from different backgrounds and perspectives and what their needs might be and how you might be able to get to know them better or or serve them in some practical way, I'm hoping that at this point, and if you've been following around the Bible studies that are in our small groups, there have been a few things that have popped up for you that you haven't been able to just sort of put off to the side. What have you been thinking about during the series? What has gotten into or moved your heart? What do you see now that you didn't see before? What do you see differently And the next question is this, what are you going to do? Because that's where the transformation happens, when you step out and actually try and do something about what you're beginning to experience in your heart. That's where it becomes real. You know, um, Jesus talked about the seed being cast out, and on the good soil takes it in and it grows. If your heart is, is good soil, it takes action. That's where the fruit is in doing something. So a lot of you, you've been tweaked. You felt things. Things have been brought to mind. Now it's time to do something about it so that it really gets into your life and becomes a part of who you are. So what are you going to do about it? Here's what I'd like to recommend. Some of the things you're thinking about, you can just do on your own. You know the little thing that you can do. Or maybe a bigger thing for you. I want you to do it, and I want you to let me know. Shoot me an email. Hey, this is what I've been discovering this whole series, and this is what I did about it. Other things you realize are a little bit bigger than you, and you need more of a team. If that's you, um, first of all, let me point you to your small group. Each small group has $50 (laughs) for this series to do something about the things that God brings up. Maybe, maybe that will fit into that. People have also been fasting and setting aside money. Maybe you can pool money to make a difference. And each small group is choosing one or two things to focus on. So that might be an option for you. But maybe it doesn't fit with what your small group is doing. Still let me know. If there's enough different projects out there, I'm considering starting this thing that we've done from time to time called Leadership Development Intensive, where people can come and bring their ideas and get supported. Coaching, 
um, some resources to do a project and learn about leadership at the same time. Basically, you got to tell somebody. So tell your small group, or tell me, or tell us both, so that we can support you in actually doing something about what God is doing in your heart. You don't have to do this alone. You might be a little bit confused. I'm really passionate about this. I don't know what to do. I'm praying about it. I'm dreaming about it. uh, I feel emotional about it. Let us in. Let us support you. Let us help you. And if you have an idea and you need help to bring it into being, we want to know. So email me. Talk to your small group. Let's do something practical. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are not like anyone else. And I thank you that you can't be divided into categories. You won't let yourself be divided into categories. So, Father, I just pray as a community that we would experience the things that you wanted people to experience in the temple 2,000 years ago. That as we worship, that we would encounter you, that we would connect to you, that we would be transformed by the experience, that we could reflect and understand and be moved by your sacrifice and your resurrection. And that that would be a part of a motivation to uh, see your kingdom come in the world around us. Um, And that we could be led into very particular uh, practical things that will make a difference in our city and our community. God, we need your help. You know, uh, we don't have it, yet we have all that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're on the worship team, if you could make your way forward, that would be terrific. And also, um, if I could now invite a representative of our prayer team to come forward. The prayer team prays before the service and asks God for impressions that could be encouraging to you or profound to individuals in the community. And so Renee is going to share some of the impressions that they have.